of all the social media apps, the one that you probably don't use as much as some adults do is Twitter. Does anybody have a Twitter account? Anybody use Twitter? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, yeah, the adults, that's right, yeah. yeah. It's not very cool anymore. It used to be cool back when uh, social media was people just kind of throwing on their random thoughts whenever without relation to anything else. But now it's mostly videos and articles and things like that. And you might have heard that Elon Musk bought Twitter. And when he did buy Twitter, he changed some things. And one of the things he changed was he added all these features. So every tweet, every single post, you can see how many people viewed that tweet. And there's always like likes and retweets and comments. And you could tell how many people kind of interacted with it but you could never really see actually how many people saw this tweet. Now, now you can see it's the bottom right thing, and it's the biggest number, obviously, because anytime anybody looks at it, they view it. So whether you scroll past it, whether you read it, whether you retweet it, any of those things count as a view, and every time that you see it, that's another view. So that's obviously the biggest number, and you've seen some of these tweets. Um, they can have up to almost a billion views because that's how many people are looking at them on their newsfeed. Now, I like that concept of a view on a tweet because I didn't always like it when you saw the likes because it's like, yeah, that's how many people liked it, but how many people saw it? I mean, on YouTube, at least you can see how many people viewed a video. That's more important because that really shows how many interactions there are, how many social interactions there are with a tweet. Now, I want you to imagine, this is kind of odd, but I want you to think, how many social interactions do you have if you count them all up, every high and by? Every head nod, every kind of interaction you have, whether it be a long conversation or a short conversation, how many social interactions do you have on any given day or week or year or count them all up in your whole lifetime? It'd probably be more than you'd think. We have a lot of social interactions, and one thing that we never stop to pause and think about is, what does God think about my social interactions? What does he think about the words that I say? What does he think about the attitude I bring to the table when I have conversations with people? What does he think about my heart behind the words that I say? What does God think about it? Well, I hope you know the Bible does actually talk about what God thinks about it. And the passage we're going to look at this morning in Ephesians, as we go verse by verse, is all about what God, specifically the Spirit, thinks about his people who are indwelled by the Spirit. Now, that's kind of theological, but I want you to grab a Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. We were in verse 17 to 24, last time we were together. So we finished in verse 24 where it said that Christians, so these are people who've been saved, which means they repented of their sins. They placed their faith in Christ. He talks to that group of people in this church. And he says, if you're a Christian, you need to constantly put off your old self with all of its desires and your old way of life and keep putting on the new self. And he says, this new self is created after the likeness of God in righteousness which we defined as external good actions, right? And holiness, which we defined as an internal purity. So as you um, are a Christian and you become more like Christ, what should happen to you is your outside, your external life should look more like Christ and also your internal life should look more like Christ. The problem is that's not the case for every last Christian. Every day, we don't always choose to do what's right. We don't always choose to say what's right. We don't always have the right attitudes, right? If we're all honest, we can admit, yeah, I mean, sometimes socially in the way I talk or my attitude, it's not always good, right? Well, what does God think about that? Well, verses 25 to 30 tell us what God thinks about it. Uh, he gives some very specific things. Look at verse 25. He's going to create this pattern I'll show you in a second. He says, therefore, because we're supposed to put off our old self and put on our new self, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So there's a pattern here, and it's going to be seen all throughout the text. He's going to say, don't do something. So don't do this. Stop doing this. And then start doing something else, okay? which in this case is stop lying, start telling the truth. And then the reason he's going to give is, I mean, depend on the verse. And the reason he gives here is because you're members of one another, which there's a word that's not imputed there that it's implying, which is you're members of one body. So it's like a, a member was a, a limb or a body part. So if your hand lies to your head, you're paralyzed, right? You can't use your fingers the way that you need to do if your head and your hand are not working together. Now, there's a lot of you know, nervous system track that runs to that, but let, let's just say the message was never getting across. Or let's say the message was a wrong message. Right? Well, then your body wouldn't function. What he's saying is, as a church, we cannot function if we lie to one another, if we deceive one another. This only works if we tell the truth. 
So this is kind of an obvious statement, but he's saying that's the first thing. Okay, And verse 26 and 27 gives another one. Verse 28 gives another one. 29 gives another one. So there's four things here he's going to address. The first one is lying. Right? So he says, start telling the truth. Stop lying. Second thing, look at verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Okay? He does not say, do not be angry. We often read that and we think, oh, he's saying stop being angry. Um, not exactly, because in fact, if you look at the original language, uh, there's words that are in the imperative mood or the indicative. Okay? Imperative means I'm telling someone to do something. Like, hey, you should be angry. right? You need to get angry. And then indicative is just, oh, someone is angry. Right? They're different things. Imperative is a command. right? You remember that from like second grade grammar. right? Uh, this is an imperative. Kind of interesting. It's an imperative. He's saying you should be angry. But do not sin. So you got to think, okay, well, what is he saying we should be angry about? Because we obviously the rest of the Bible is going to tell you we shouldn't be just angry people all the time. So what is he referencing? Well, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 4.4, which is an exact quotation, where God says, be angry and do not sin. Now, we got to know what the Old Testament says to understand this command. The Old Testament in that Psalm, Psalm 4, when we don't read very much, Psalm 4 talks about people who are doing very evil things in the world. And a righteous person who's thinking about the evil things. And God says, hey, be angry about it because it's unrighteous. But in your anger, in your passion, don't sin because that's our temptation. We can be angry about things that we feel justified to be angry about. But he says, make sure that even if you are justified to be angry about something, that in the process, you don't sin. Because all of us are tempted in that way. We all get passionate about some things. We all get angry about some things. Some of you are more passionate and angry than other people. But even if it's about something good, he says, make sure you don't sin in the process. Look what he says next. Um, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. The idea is, you know, the sun going down at night and you're still angry. He says, resolve your anger within the day. Right? Just don't, don't even let it um, elapse over time. Next thing he says is, verse 27, the purpose, the reason. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. So what does he say don't do? Well, don't sin in your anger. He says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. But what should you do? What's the positive? Well, there are some things we should be angry about as Christians. And then he says, and make sure that you resolve this anger. And then what's the reason? The reason is because if you don't, you're giving Satan an opportunity in your life. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But all of us, sometimes if we let anger go on in your heart, let's say you're angry about something good and right. And there's something you should be angry about. Maybe a person in your life was hurt by someone else. Or there's something that happened to you that was unjustified. And you look at that and say, man, I'm upset about that. I was wronged. Okay? That might be true. But he says, even with righteous anger, you understand that that, if you keep it, and you're always uh, upset about something, that leads to a ton of different sins. Like bitterness. Like holding grudges. Like acting out. Like saying things that you shouldn't in anger. Even if the initial passion and anger was okay and good, you hold on for that for too long, it's going to cause problems. It's going to give Satan an opportunity to get inside of your life and your church and in your family. Verse 28 talks about something else, the third thing here. He says, if you're a thief, no longer steal, which makes sense. If you're a Christian and you used to be a thief, you used to steal things, and you would go into people's houses and take things that um, didn't belong to you, or you would steal money, or you would steal food, or whatever these people did as thieves, he says, hey, don't do that anymore. Obvious. That's kind of low bar. But look what he says next. He doesn't just say, stop stealing. He says, but rather, what's the positive thing? Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that, here's the reason, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's crazy. If you take a person who's a thief, usually they're a thief because they're lazy or because they want something that they can't have. They covet and they, they steal. So there's a lot of sinful reasons why people steal, right? But imagine a person that's so radically changed that not only do they stop taking what doesn't belong to them, but they start working hard for stuff on their own so that they can start giving their things away. That's a radical kind of change. That's not just like, hey, I'm going to adjust some of my moral behaviors. That's a radical change. And that's what happens for Christians. Right? You could input whatever sin you want there. Repentance, true repentance for us, looks like this. Not only stopping the sin but then replacing it with a righteous action that's actually helpful for the people in our lives. That's a great verse about repentance. Look at verse 29. It goes further. This might be the most convicting for all of us. Look at verse 29. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only the talk that is good for building up 
as fits the occasion, which means it's appropriate that it may give grace to those who hear. Um, what he's saying there is our words can be corrupting, right? They can be poison that we spew out on other people. So he says, be careful that you don't let any of those words come out of your mouth. But what words should come out of your mouth? Well, only the ones that are good for building up, that are constructive, that are edifying, that are helpful. And you might say, well, I've got a lot of truth I can drop on somebody. You know what he says next? As fits the occasion. Sometimes we have good words that we could say, but it's not the right time to say those good words. We might have a rebuke that's important and good and godly, but we need to wait for the right time, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our goal is, if you're interacting with other Christians, you want to give grace. You want to give help. You want to give kindness. You want to help the Christians in your life, that it may give grace to those who hear. And you might say, I didn't see anything in this passage about what God thinks of it. Well, that comes right here at the end in verse 30. Look at it together. It says, and... Do not grieve or make sad. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So that, he doesn't give a positive command. He just gives a negative and a reason. The negative is don't make the Spirit sad. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but if you're a Christian, here's what happens right when you become a Christian. Um, Jesus saves you, correct? And God, the Holy Spirit, enters your life. It's called the indwelling of the Spirit. Now, you have God's spirit in you. Now, if you're a Christian and you interact with another Christian, that means two people who have God's spirit in them interact. Now, I want you to imagine, what if those two people who have God's spirit in them start fighting with each other? How does that make God's spirit feel, right? Who's a person who has thoughts and emotion and will, right? How does it make him feel? Well, obviously, right? Well, that's probably what would make him feel good. Christians are constantly fighting. If in one church or in one small group, we have two real Christians that won't talk to each other anymore because of a grudge, how does that make God the Spirit feel? Who's in both of them? It's wrong. Right? So he says, don't grieve the Spirit, whether it be with bad words or with anger that left, gets left unchecked or um, by stealing or by lying. All these things have the possibility and potential of making God's Spirit sad. And what I want to do this morning is just take a one step back and look at our social interactions, like I said at the beginning, and start to think, do they make the spirit happy and glad? Or do we make the spirit sad by the way we talk, by the way we interact, and by the way we have conversations with each other, and the way we treat other people in the church? This is very important. So the first thing, I don't always do this, but I want to give you a big idea. It's at the top of your page if you've got a worksheet from the back. This is all going to follow the pattern of the text, which says stop doing something, start doing something else. This is the only one that's actually implied because the rest give a positive and a negative. The first one is going to come from verse 30, which I want to just be the big, overarching, big idea here. That in your social interactions, as you deal Christian to Christian, um, stop making the Holy Spirit sad. And start making the Holy Spirit glad. That's the big idea today. Um, that's on the top of your page. Stop making the Holy Spirit sad. And start making the Holy Spirit glad. Easy enough to memorize. Um, the reason that's the big idea is because all these four points... All the four things he mentions come underneath that big idea. Like, if we do these four points, that sets us up to accomplish the big goal, the big task, which is, in my interactions, I want God to be pleased with the way I talk. I want God to be pleased with the way you interact with your parents this afternoon. I want God to be pleased with the way the people in your small group treat you, right? I want God to be pleased with that. Well, we do that by obeying God's word and by putting it into practice. Four things here. First one comes in verse 25. You already saw it. Um, lying, deceiving, and telling the truth. Okay? Here's how I put it. Point number one, stop lying and deceiving. That's easy enough. And start telling the honest truth. Stop lying and deceiving and start telling the honest truth. Very practical. Lying and deceiving. The reason I give those two things is sometimes we can think that, well, I didn't lie about something. Let's give an example. Um, your parents ask you, where did you go last night? And you give a partial answer. You, you say part of where you went. Oh, we went to Taco Bell. Oh, we went to Denny's. Oh, we went to somewhere. But that's not really where you spent most of the time. Like, you know you spent most of the time at someone's house and your parents didn't want you to go there because they told you not to go there. Let's just, this is an example. Um, so instead of maybe telling the full truth, we just kind of give a half truth, okay? That's deceiving. Even if you don't feel like, oh, that's lying. I, I told the truth, but you didn't tell the whole truth. You didn't tell the honest truth. And by the way, honest truth, I, I understand that's redundant, right? Honest is truth. Truth is honest. I get it. But the reason I say it that way is because some of us can say, well, I told you the truth. 
truth of the maybe lowercase t. Or I told you part of the truth. But I didn't tell you the honest truth about where I really was or what I was really doing or who I was really talking to. I didn't really tell you the honest truth. This is what it looks like to live as a Christian in real repentance is to cut out deceiving and cut out lying and start telling the truth. This week I thought through some common ways that people lie. Um, in small groups this week, I think I tell you to make a list. I, I'm going to ask you to make 10 common ways that people lie. Right? Um, you can make your own list, but I made a list of some ways that high school students lie, and here's one of them. Um, the one I mentioned, little white lies, telling half-truths to our parents. Right? Uh, that's one way that people lie, and if you're a Christian, you need to stop lying like that, um, telling half-truths. Another way that people lie is they cover for their friends. Here's what that looks like. If a friend says, hey, cover for me with the teacher or with the assignment or with my parents, and you lie in my place. Christian, you can't do that. It's, it's out of bounds. You can't do it. It's sin. Many people uh, lie on their college essays. They embellish their stories. They, they, they say things that didn't really happen, but, you know, it's just it's for the, the school. And I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be the truth. Well, if you're a Christian, you need to tell the truth. You need to not lie. You not falsely represent something. People lie on resumes, right? You want to get a certain job, and then you tell people, oh, I, I worked at this place for two years, right? Well, you didn't work there for two years, right? You didn't actually um, do that job. Maybe you did a job like it, but you didn't really do that job. That's a form of lying. Right? I don't know if you think about that, but this is super, super practical, right? If God's word says don't lie, right? and immediately we think of all these justifications for reasons why we can lie, I just think we shouldn't do that. For just a little bit this morning, I want you to think of common ways that people lie. College essays, covering for friends, little white lies, lying on resumes. Um, here's one way that it happens that just kind of seeps out of us in conversation. When we're having conversations with people, sometimes we lie about knowing something and pretending, oh, I know that thing you're talking about, when you don't know that thing that someone's talking about. Or we do that sometimes with people, right? Someone says, oh, do you know such and such? And you act like you know, that. yeah, 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 I know that. That's lying if it's not true. If you present something that's not true, well, then that's lying. It's at least deceiving, right? If you don't want to call it lying, you think, oh, it's not a bold-faced lie, but it's at least deceiving. And that's at the spirit of what he's talking about here. Put away falsehood is what he's saying. Another way that high school students lie is they hide things from their parents. Right? Hiding things or texts that you know you don't want anyone to find out about, and you know your parents are going to find out, so you hide them. That's a form of deception, Another way people lie is when they're confronted with something hard or like they're in trouble, so to speak, or you know, some, an assignment's due or whatever's happening, and immediately their first reaction is to give a lying excuse. Oh, well, I didn't know about that. When you did know about that. Oh, I didn't write it. When you did write it down. Oh, well, I had no idea. Yeah, well, that's true. That part is true. You did have no idea, but that's your fault, right? Um, but we give excuses. Sometimes we're confronted. If we've done wrong, and immediately in our defensiveness, we start lying and saying, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. When the truth is, we did say that, and we did do that. We lie um, often. Some people lie as their natural response to things. I just want you to think about those things. That's not even a list of 10. That's just like seven or six things right there. But um, what would make your list of ways that you have been guilty of lying? This text is very clear. Put away falsehood and speak truth with your neighbor. Because if you think lying stops when you don't have to submit to your parents anymore, I just want to tell you that's really when the lying starts for most people, when they become adults. Some of us can be tricked into thinking, well, the only reason I lie is because my parents are just on me, and you know, if they just didn't have so much pressure on me, I would stop lying. Okay? I want to tell you that that's uh, not true. Uh, adults lie. Uh, here's some ways that adults lie, that maybe you don't lie, but adults lie. Adults lie at their work, often. They say, maybe they represent themselves on the phone as somebody when they're really not that person. Maybe they say, oh, I, uh, I, yeah, I've worked for this company or I've done this thing when they haven't worked for that company and they haven't done that thing. They lie sometimes in networking, right? And I'm telling you all these things because I want to put these things on your radar to say these are going to be potential ways that the world is going to push me to lie when I'm adult and you need to say I can't do it. Right? Some of you, right, as you think about jobs and work, there are some types of work that you can't even do without lying. Maybe talk to your small group leader about that if you're thinking about, oh, I'm thinking about a line of work. If it's so problematic morally that you can't even tell the truth on your day-to-day -day life, well, then it's, it's an occupation you shouldn't take. People lie on their taxes, which sounds dumb, but um, 
when you're presented with the opportunity and you think that you're going to get away with it, um, sometimes it feels easy to do. Here's a way that people lie. Maybe some of you have bought cars before, um, or maybe you're about to buy a car. Here's a way that people lie, and you will be presented with the temptation to lie. Here's a common one, right? Adults, you already know what I'm about to say. Um, you buy a used car from somebody, okay? You know, you, you know this, leaders? You buy a used car from somebody, and you have to write in how much you bought the car for, because that's how much taxes you're going to owe uh, the government, right? Well, sometimes if you buy like a $10,000 car, let's just say, the person you're buying from might say, hey, you don't have to write down $10,000, just write down $2,000. You'll save like $600, $700 in taxes. I'll even do it for you. That's going to be an opportunity where you will be presented to lie. And as a Christian, you need to say, I I can't do that. I have to tell the truth. No, 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 I I have to pay the extra, right? Which you're not even paying extra. You're just paying um, what you actually owe. Because, you know, if you pay $10,000 worth of taxes versus $2,000 worth of taxes, that's a big difference in your sales tax, right? But you need to write down the correct number. This is very, very practical. But you need to write down the correct number to the best of your abilities. Why? Because you, as a Christian, you're not a liar anymore. You're not a liar anymore. You need to stop lying in whatever shape or form it comes. People lie when they get pulled over by the police. They say, it wasn't on my phone, when they were on their phone. People lie when they get pulled over by the police and say it wasn't speeding, when they know they were speeding. People lie to their spouses, right? You think it's, not, you think it's hard to stop lying to your parents, right? Imagine when you're married and you're going to have all these opportunities to lie to your spouse. Right? It is so destructive, lying. And I want to harp on it just for a little bit just to remind you that none of you are above it. None of you are beyond it. You're all going to be presented with temptations to lie. And as a Christian, you need to say, I'm done lying. Here's what God's word says, Exodus 20, 16. This is very clear. Ten commandments, right? Very important. Beginning of God's word, he says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't say someone did something when they didn't do it. Don't, don't even, especially when you're talking to other people, don't involve someone else in your lie. That's what that means. Proverbs 12, 22. Listen to this, Proverbs 12, 22. God says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. God hates them. They're disgusting to God when he sees you lying. Says, but those who act faithfully are his delight. He loves it when you're going to be presented with the opportunity to lie and you choose to do what's right and you have to pay the consequences of telling the truth. God says, that's my person right there. I love that. They're willing to do what's right, even when it costs them. Jesus says this about lying. John 8, 44, he talked to the religious leaders who were not on God's side at the time, as crazy as that sounds. They were the people that wore the nice um, religious clothes and the funny hats and all the things like that, but they were not right with God. And he says about them, this is John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Right? So he's calling these people children of the devil. Wow, why? Well, he says, because your will is to do your father's desires. Well, what are Satan's desires? He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Um, this might be intense, but if, if your life is shaped and dominated by the sin of deception and lying, some two things that you need to know. One, uh, you'll be found out. You always will be. And two, this text says if you're a liar and you've never repented of lying, well, then he says you're your father, the devil. Jesus looks at you and says, you don't even belong on my team. That's, the, that's like at the beginning of repenting of your sin is to say, I'm going to be done lying. I'm going to give up my lies. Colossians 3.9 says, don't lie to one another. I'm talking to Christians. Seeing that you put off your old self with its practices. That's an old practice. That's a non-Christian thing that you did. It needs to be done. Tell the full truth. Live with the consequences, right? That's why we don't tell the truth oftentimes because we're like, the consequences will be higher And I can just kind of get out of this if I lie. God's word says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. It's verse 25. Verse 26 and 7 talk about anger, right? And anger that can start out righteous but can lead to sin. Okay, so uh, the way I want you to write it down, point number two is this. Stop sinning in anger and start quickly quelling your anger. Stop sinning in anger. And start quickly quelling your anger. And I want to make one qualification to all this. It's important to write down after you write this down. One important qualification. When people look at the Bible, they rightly make a distinction 
between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And I alluded to that. Um, righteous anger is the kind of anger that God gets, right, when he's sinned against or he sees sin in the world. Right, the other night, um, Alexander and I were looking at some things on social media, and it was just so evil. And, and things that adults were saying to children that was so over the top and wrong, and it just made us angry, right? That's righteous anger. We don't know those kids. We don't know those adults, but we see it. It's like, oh, that just makes us upset. That's righteous anger, like God has when he views sin. But the difference between me and God is God's not a sinner. So every time God gets angry in the Bible, he never responds in sin, right? He never says something that's wrong or uh, treats someone wrong because of anger. He only does what's right. But for me, I can be angry about something, but even if it starts out as like a righteous anger, it can lead to sinful things. I can say things that are sinful or do things that are sinful or act out, even if it starts out as righteous anger, okay? That's righteous anger. Psalm 711, that's an easy one to remember. Psalm 711 says, the Lord is a righteous judge and he feels indignation every day. When he sees his world that he made to glorify him, when it doesn't do that, and sometimes it's in extreme versions of, of not glorifying God, right? And some of us can think of ways that people have been wronged and, and horrible things have happened on this planet. And you think that must make God sad. It does make God sad. It makes him angry. That's righteous anger. There's another type of anger that is wrong all the time, okay? So righteous anger is right, but only for a little bit. And you need to stop being righteous anger, okay? That's what the text says. But there, this is a sidebar. There's unrighteous anger, which is any time your pride might be attacked, or you don't get what you want, and selfishly, you don't get what you selfishly want, so you act out, and you're angry that you're offended, right? That's, that's wrong all the time. So the Bible says, cut that anger out altogether, right? If, if you're offended, and it's all just about you, and it's not about God, it's not about righteousness, it's not about holiness, it's just like, man, I didn't get what I want, so I'm going to be envious or angry. Well, that's wrong all the time, okay? So the only anger we're talking about here is Psalm 4, 4 anger, righteous anger. So that's just a qualification here. Because you might say, okay, stop sinning your anger. Well, I can keep being mad at somebody. I can keep a grudge. I can keep being bitter against them. No, you can't. Right? Scripture does not allow you to do that. But if you see something that's unrighteous and it brings out this anger in you, that's what this text is talking about. In fact, that command, be angry and do not sin, is a command. There are things to be angry about. But in your anger, you're not allowed to sin. I'm not allowed to sin. common ways people sin in anger. I don't have a list of 10, but I have some things here. Uh, when you feel so passionate about something or angry that you're wronged or someone else is wronged, what happens is oftentimes we lose this, uh, our self-control and you'll say or do things that you won't do if you're just, you know, kind of sitting at church in your right mind or sitting at school and everything's normal, right? You act like the, the not normal version of you, right, when you're angry. Uh, you've seen the, the Snickers commercial, right? You're not you when you're hungry. You've seen that? And then people do crazy things, and the idea is like, oh, when you're hungry, you act out. Right? Well, it's not so much that. That's not a biblical concept. The biblical concept is uh, the worst thing you do, and however bad you do, that is who you are. It's just the self-control, the restraint is taken off. It's just revealing what's really going on. So if you're a person who acts out and does get angry a lot, well, that just shows what's going on inside, and it just shows that sometimes you lack the self-control to hold it in. Right, biblically, so it's not like you change people when you get angry, right? We're not the Incredible Hulk or something that, you know, when you get angry, you change, you know, like that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you're angry and you spill out an anger, it's because you were angry before you got all fired up, right? It's because you had something in your heart. But this kind of um, anger, right, we lose self-control. Some other ways that people uh, sin in their anger. They, they lose self-control of their words, so they say things that are really evil. Maybe sometimes you spit out things from your mouth that are deep-rooted, angry things that you've thought about people, and, and you just let it all out. You give full vent to your spirit, as Proverbs 29.11 says. Sometimes what you do in your anger is you store up your anger instead of spilling it out and, and shouting it out. Maybe what you do in anger is you like store up all these bad things and think, okay, I'm keeping track. They did this, they did this, they did this, they did this, and then after it's over, you just replay all the things. Oh, they did this, 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 and this. And when your head hits the pillow at night or when you're brushing your teeth, all you can think about is they did this, 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 and this. That's how we sin in anger. It's wrong. God calls us to give that up. He says, do not let the sun go down in your anger. So if it's unrighteous anger, stop it at the moment, right? Do the best you can. Say, I'm, 
Why am I angry? This is dumb. I was offended. Okay, well, that's unrighteous anger. You need to stop that. But in it, even if it's righteous anger, you need to say it's got a little time period, and then it needs to be over. Here's what the Bible says. Three passages for you. Psalm 37, 8. Psalm, Psalm 37, 8 says about righteous anger, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. Even if you're right to be angry, sometimes you are right to be angry and you need to say, you know what? I just, I'm not, just not going to worry about it right now. Um, sometimes. And even if you do need to worry about something, let's say something really bad happened in your family or something really bad happened with your siblings or something really bad happened to you or a friend or a loved one and there's like this anger that you get. Right? Well, don't sit on that anger for three weeks. Right? Because you sit on that anger, you start to go from being righteously angry to that morphs into sin over time. The way that the text says is you give the devil a place or a foothold. The, the word here is opportunity, but it, it literally means like um, it's like you're carving out a place in your heart for him to come in. Right? Obviously, it's not that you mean, I'm not saying you get indwelled by the devil, but um, it is interesting because in the Bible, whenever you talk about demons, for some reason, they talk about it in spatial terms. So like there's a place for them or they went into this or they went out of this. Um, even if physically they're not coming in and out of things like that, um, the point is still biblically uh, you allow a place for it. I like what one translation says, if you stay angry, you're giving the devil a foothold, right? You got some rock climbers here, right? People who climb, yeah, that's right. Uh, Nick wore his uh, rock climbing pants today. You gotta ask him about those. This is really cool. Um, but when you rock climb, you can't just climb up just with your hands unless you're like, I mean, super cool. I guess maybe you can. But you need hand holes and foot holes, right? If you're climbing up like maybe the side of a mountain, right, you need places to put your hands and your feet. Here's what it's saying. When you stay angry, it's like you're carving out more places for the devil to just climb up into your life. Right? That's what we do. We stay angry. James 1.20 says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Right? Sometimes we think it does, but it won't. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, this is a good one. It says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. That's another spatial analogy, right? I can just imagine a, a wood chip, right, getting stuck in, in your blood vessels, your arteries, something stuck, like, physically in your body. That's how I think of it, right? Anger just gets stuck in there, and it causes problems. God gets angry, though, right? So it doesn't lodge in his heart. Like it lodges in fools. Christians, sometimes, when they look at injustice in the world, they should be angry. But don't get it lodged in your heart because the Bible says the people who have anger lodged in their hearts, those are fools. They don't understand that that's not going to produce the good that they think it is. One more verse that might give a more uh, fully orbed explanation of this is Romans 12, 19 to 21. Romans 12, 19 to 21 gives like the full picture. It describes, okay, if you feel like you're wronged, what should you do when you feel like you're wronged? Right? Well, what should you stop it? Well, this is passage will tell you. Listen to this. It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Right? Never go and take revenge on people. Someone did you wrong, I'm going to go do them wrong. It says, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God. Let God avenge you. Right? If you want to think about it like this, what is your vengeance going to do to somebody else? Right? Eh, might not even really hurt them very much. He says, no. Let God take care of it, right? God will take revenge on the wrong that's done. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. Like, be nice to the people that are doing wrong to you. You feel like someone's constantly attacking you and someone's mean to you. And you're like, man, I just don't know why they hate me so much. They hate me so much. Okay, let's say someone's mad at you. Let's say there's no good reason why. Right? There probably is a reason, but let's just say it's completely irrational why somebody dislikes you. Here's what the God, God's word says. Don't avenge yourself. Don't be mean back. Don't just give it back to them. No. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed them. If he needs something, help that person out. Be the first one to say, I'm, I'm willing to help them. I'm willing to feed them. I'm willing to give them what they need. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on their head. It's like you're giving them even more judgment because you're so kind to them and they're so mean to you, right? The, the reality is for us, that's usually not how the case is, right? Instead of being kind to the people who feel like they're constantly against us, we get bitter and we let anger lodge in our hearts like fools, the Bible says, and then we act out of that anger. God's word says don't do that. It says do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. That's the solution. It's not to um, even the playing field by using a little evil back, and maybe that'll help them out. That's not our role. He says, just overcome evil by good, which is a lot easier said than done. All of this, by the way, is easier said than done. You might be thinking about, okay, lying and deceiving and anger and overcoming it. This sounds really hard. It is really hard. But if you've got spirit, God gives us the power to defeat sin. The Bible's very clear about that. Romans 6, we talked about it a couple weeks back, but it says, consider yourself dead to sin. The world's been crucified to you. If you think about it, whether it be lying, deceiving, anger, or anything else, the main reason I think these social problems happen is because we're selfish, right? You've maybe heard that before, right? Uh, usually people act in their own self-interest, and sometimes when that's wrong, it turns into a type of selfishness, where we care less about other people than we care about ourselves and our own things going on, right? That's selfishness, okay? So that's kind of at the bottom of all this, but I just want you to see that's at the core of the next thing he talks about. Look at verse 28 in your passage real quick. Verse 28, it says, Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that, me ha- so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Point number three is this. Uh, stop taking what's not yours and start working hard and giving. Stop taking what's not yours and start working hard and giving. Super important. Why do people steal? Well, because they, uh, they want what they don't have. Or they're too lazy to get it. Maybe they can have it. They just don't have it right now. They just want it right now. So they're lazy. It could be a lot of things. But I love this passage. Verse 28, like, this might be the best verse, and you might think, I'm not a thief, though. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but this is, like, one of the best verses that displays what does true repentance look like. A lot of you wonder that. A lot of you say, okay, I just became a Christian recently. Uh, What does it look like for me to really turn from my old life of of my sin? This is a great paradigm right here. You stop doing the wrong, you start doing the right that's replacing it, and then you start doing right that actually helps other people. It's really helpful. Common ways that people steal. I want you to think about this real quick. Common ways that maybe a high schooler might steal. Um, they might not think about it. Uh, the most common way that I thought of is you steal answers from people when you're taking a test or you're doing an assignment. It's not yours. It's not your information. You didn't come up with something. You're just stealing it from everybody else or stealing it from the internet or plagiarizing things that don't belong to you. That's called stealing. Let the thief no longer steal. What do you think God thinks of us when we're presented maybe with a test or an exam and it's meant to, and I know, you, I, like, I take this seriously for a second, guys. Seriously, yeah. Take this seriously for a second. I know, yeah, take it seriously, okay? What do you think God thinks of it when he looks at you and your life and your exams and he constantly sees stealing and theft and cheating and plagiarism? Like, what, do you, what do you think he thinks of that? Uh, pff, it doesn't matter. I just don't think that's how God thinks. Because this text says, let the thief no longer steal. It's gotten so easy to cheat, right? It's easier to cheat sometimes um, now than it has ever been, I think. But cheating on tests, having other people write things for you um, when it comes to school. There's so much cheating and stealing when it comes to school. Um, There's cheating and stealing when it comes to uh, physical things or uh, money. Right, stealing, uh, shoplifting. Shoplifting is really easy, right? And they've even made the shoplifting laws so little that you know if you stole, there'd be hardly any consequence for people stealing. And you know, if you steal things, you know that uh, very little consequences for stealing these days. Shoplifting. Uh, here's one: taking money from your parents that doesn't belong to you. What I mean by that is, uh, let's say you need forty bucks to go do something, and your parents are willing to give it to you. And you take that money, right? And they say, oh, what's the change? You say, oh, I only have three bucks left. When you really have 13 bucks left, that's stealing. That's lying and stealing. That's two things in one. You think God doesn't care when you steal money from your parents? I know it sounds like, wow, it sounds like such an elementary little thing. Yeah, until you look at your life and your friend's life and you start to see there's lean. I just came up with a couple of examples, but all of them hit home. People take food that doesn't belong to them. And that might sound so dumb, like, okay, but that doesn't matter. God's word gives instructions to an interesting group of people. Um, in Titus 2, verse 10, there's instructions to people who are slaves. And in the first century, a lot of people were slaves. 
uh, 30% of the population were slaves. But what these slaves did is they worked in someone's house, right? Maybe some of the teachers were slaves, some of even the architects were slaves, some of the artists were slaves. So, you know, slave wasn't just, you know, picking something in a field. It was a lot more than that back then. There's a lot of people that were covered by slavery. But there was an easy thing to do when you were a slave. And it was something called pilfering. Pilfering is when you take stuff that belongs to your employer and you take it for yourself and you don't tell them about it. Right? Something that doesn't belong to you. That's called pilfering. You know the scriptures say, if you're a slave, stop pilfering. Because it was a very common thing people did. And you can imagine, right? Imagine, you know, you and 300 people worked for some big, you know, some, some, some mansion and you're all doing a million things for them. It's easy to kind of take some bread that doesn't belong to you and take some wine that doesn't belong to you and you kind of steal things little by little that don't belong to you. That's called pilfering. Sometimes there's even a bigger example. Um, in the New Testament, there's a slave named Philemon. I don't know if you know this. One of your books, your Bible is named after him. He's a slave who became a Christian and Paul writes a letter to him and his, his master and he says, hey, uh, Philemon became a Christian. Can you please forgive him of the debt that he, he owes you? And it's like, what debt does he owe you? Well, he probably ran away from his house and stole a bunch of stuff. Then he becomes a Christian, and Paul says, hey, I'm going to write to you. Can you please forgive everything he's stolen? And and by the way, if there's anything that you still need from him, take it from me. I'll I'll pay back whatever he owes because he can't afford it, but I'll pay back whatever he owes. And then he says, but I hope you don't have to do that because the book of Philemon has like the biggest burn in the whole Bible, I think. Um, He says, because, you know, you owe me your whole life and your soul, so you can think about, you know, sending me a bill. That's Paul saying, hey, uh, Philemon's uh, slave, Onesimus, uh, Philemon wasn't the slave, Onesimus was the slave. Um, he tells Philemon, hey, remember, uh, you got saved because I preached the gospel to you, so um, if you want me to pay you back, I can, but like, I don't, is that really a good thing to do? Just kind of let it go. Um, I thought that was interesting. That's the burn. Sorry, that was a long-winded way of saying the burn. Anyway, here's the point. Uh, there's plenty of opportunities they had in the first century to steal, and you might think without cameras and without things that would have been easier to steal back then. In some ways, that's true. But there's a lot of ways that high school students steal today. I'm just encouraging you and urging you, not only do you need to stop stealing, but what would it look like for you to do the opposite? Step one is stop stealing. Step two is working hard with your own hands, working on your own paper, like doing your own work, doing it for yourself, like doing it and saying, this is what I'm presenting to the Lord. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men except when it comes to school assignments, and except when it comes to homework, and except when it comes to essays. And I don't think so. I think it applies to that too. There's an interesting story, two stories in the Gospel of Luke, where people stole stuff, and then they feel bad, and then God's word says, give it back then, give it back. In Luke 3, when these uh, people came to John the Baptist, he was preaching and telling them to repent, uh, and tax collectors who stole money, and soldiers who would extort money, which means they would by force make up lies about other people so that they could steal stuff, right? Uh, He tells them, stop doing that, and then give back what you owe. Zacchaeus, which was a a famous tax collector, right? You know, Zacchaeus. There's a wee little man named Zacchaeus, right? He was sitting in the sycamore tree, right? You know Zacchaeus, the old Bible story? Uh, Here's what he did. When he gets saved, the first evidence of his salvation is this. This is Luke 19, 8. He says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my goods, which was his God at the time, his idol, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. So this guy who was a thief went back through his logs and says, I'm going to give back to people I stole. I know I stole from people. I'm not only going to give it back, I'm going to repay it fourfold. I'm going to give them four times as much back that I stole from them. There's a biblical principle called restitution. If you've stolen things or done wrong, and I would encourage you, if this sermon brings conviction that I have stolen money from my parents or I have cheated or I have done wrong, if there's possibility for restitution, you know what the righteous thing for you to do is? Not to say, oh, let me forget about it. Oh, it's convicting. I don't want to talk about it. It's to go and tell my parents, hey, I've stolen money from you so many times. I I want to pay you back. I've got 400 bucks here. It's yours. I just want, I, you might say, that's crazy. I would never do that. That's called the biblical press principle of restitution. I can point you to a lot of stories of people doing that and God completely changing their life. Right? And you might shake your head and you might say, I would never do that. But I just, God's word talks about restitution, Zacchaeus. A couple more verses for you to write down. One more verse here. Uh, 
2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12. This is just about the stealing one. This is more about the hard work. There's a biblical ethic to work. You might never heard this before, but let me tell it to you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 says, For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So um, that's what God's word says about laziness. If you're unwilling to get a job, if you're unwilling to work, obviously he doesn't say get a job, right? There's plenty of people who didn't have jobs back then, but they did plenty of work, right? Think about all these ladies, think about all these daughters, think about all these young men, right? They're doing plenty of work at home where they didn't go and get a job. But Paul's like, hey, if you're not willing to work, if you're lazy, God's word says you should stop being fed, which again, be radical, right? If some of your parents implemented that strategy this afternoon, right? I think your chores would get done if you didn't get dinner until you finished your chore. Like, I know that sounds crazy, and you would say, that's abusive, and it's not abusive, right? God's word says, if you're not willing to work, let him not eat. You want more? Here's some more. Next verse. It says, for when we came to you, we heard that some walked in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, right? Nobody's completely lazy, right? Lazy people usually find something else to do. And he says here, the people in that town, they weren't working, they were just talking, talking, talking. They're busy bodies. They're gossiping. That's what replaced their work time. They started doing sin. It says, now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus, which means this is from the authority of Jesus Christ, that you need to do your work quietly and earn your own living. That's what he says to the people who don't work. Now, that might be news to you, right? but that's what God's word says, and that will prove true. Right? There's easier ways out in our world, you might think, but start working hard and giving, which, by the way, giving is kind of the 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 push at the end, he says, have enough to share with people who need. Imagine a thief who's stealing stuff from people. Now, instead of stealing, which, by the way, I'm not talking about Robin Hood. Um, I'm not talking about stealing stuff so that you can give it to other people, right? That's sin. That's wrong, okay, to steal people's stuff, right, and then give it and think, oh, I'm using it for a good cause, right? That's, that's not true. Right? It is wrong. God does not want your stolen money. Um, yeah, passages we could turn to about that, too. Judas. 30 pieces of silver, chucking it back, and them saying, we can't even take it, right? Even the Jews wouldn't even take the blood money that they gave to, about Jesus. I mean, it's just amazing um, how sometimes we justify our sin. Anyway, I need to get to this fourth point because you need to write down. Point number four, what's verse 29? Corrupting talk, right? Here's how you can write it down. Stop rotting with your words and start edifying with your words. Um, rotting or poison or corrupting, it's all these ideas it really comes from this one word of corrupting uh, that it's like poison spills out of your mouth. Right? How often have you been in situations maybe with your family members or maybe at school where you just witness just poison come out of someone's mouth? Right? And you think, oh, I hope I don't do that. Um, then your words need to be edifying. Edifying means building up or constructive or helpful uh, or even further, not just constructive, but giving grace to the people who hear. I love the little phrase, as fits the occasion, because we have a word in our vocabulary for that. As fits the occasion, it's a word we don't use very often. I mean, you've heard it a lot, but you probably don't use it very often. It's the word appropriate. Appropriate means as fits the occasion. Right? So our words, not only should they be like helpful and grace-giving, they should also fit the right occasion. They should be appropriate. Right? There's times we can say things that are appropriate, and there are times that we can say the same thing that's not appropriate. Here's an example. Proverbs 15, 23 says, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And a word in season, like at the right time, how good it is. You could hear this, someone you know, give you maybe an encouragement that doesn't really impact you and maybe you're not listening, but then there's a point in your life where it really means something and you hear the same phrase, you hear the same line, and it's just like, oh, that's really good. That's appropriate. Part of the challenge for us as Christians, if we want to give grace with our words, is to stop and be contemplative about, like, how do I say this biblical truth? How do I, how do I present it in a way that's edifying? Or it's not just about saying what's true, right? That's the start, obviously. That's verse 25. But if we want to give grace to the people we talk to, other Christians, we need to think, okay, what's the right way? H how do I do it? And this is a really hard thing to do. But the idea is we need to think, okay, I don't want to rot with my words. I want to start edifying. Here's what Jesus says. Write this down. Last passage to write down. Matthew 12, 34 and 36. Matthew 12, 34 to 36. These three verses here, Jesus calls these people out again. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good, 
Right? How can good words come out of your mouth when you, on the inside, are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Out of the abundance, of, so whatever's going on inside, that's what comes on the outside. Some of us are tending to think, oh, my bad words. I mean, I just say those things. I don't always mean those things. Okay, I can grant that maybe you weren't thinking through what you were saying at the time, but don't say they didn't come from your heart because they did come from a heart. Right? And there's nasty words that come from our heart. And by the way, when you're interacting with people and you're looking at people that you want to be friends with or you're looking at um, people that you want to start dating or be in romantic relationships with, you understand the, the first thing that's very easy to look at is what comes out of their mouth corrupting words come out of their mouth. There's a lot of poison that comes out of their mouth. Here's some, here's some examples. Gossip, slander, backbiting, complaining, crude joking, profanity, just general mean words. There's just a few things. God's word says, where does it come from? It comes from our heart. It doesn't just come from our mouth. Stop writing with your words. Start edifying with your words. There's so much here, and again, more than we can cover um, in one morning. We were actually going to go all the way to verse 32, but Roy stopped me. He said, no, no, no. I'll take verse 31, 32 next week. So we're going to do that next week. Um, but speaking of Roy, he preached recently on James chapter 3, which says that the, the words that we speak are like fire that come out of our mouth. They can burn a lot of things down, or they can warm the house, so to speak. I want you to think about all your social interactions that way. Right? This week, am I going to burn the place down <laughs> with my words? Am I going to scorch little things, or am I going to be helpful? Am I going to warm people with my words? Am I going to be helpful? Even if sometimes it's hard, even if rebukes are hard, am I going to do good? Am I going to weld people together? You can stretch out the fire analogy as long as you want. There's a lot of things there. Um, but let me pray for you. Um, let me pray for me as we seek to do that this week. Let's pray. God, we recognize this morning that you are in heaven and we are on earth. We want our words to be few. We recognize that we often say things that we shouldn't, and we know we'll be held accountable for every careless word we speak. So I pray that those of us who are Christians this morning would be very, very vigilant of our words and how we talk and how we respond to other Christians. And I pray for those people in this room who know they're not Christians. I pray and plead on their behalf that they would turn to you and they would give up their sin and that they would see that their sin is self-destructive and harmful for themselves and for everyone around them pray that you'd give us a great show of mercy and grace and forgiveness as we repent of these sins. Many of us need to do business with you and just repent of our lying and, and repent of our theft and our corrupting talk. I pray that this sermon and this text would create a real change in our group, that here in True North, in this small little group of, of all the things you're doing in the world, I know we are small and relatively insignificant, but I ask that this morning you would make a a large effect because your spirit is working among us. You're in us. You're causing us to be more like you. So I pray uh, that he would do that work and we would not grieve him. We'd make him glad. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.